Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Thanks for taking the time to join us this morning. It's good to be with you all uh, together. A beautiful day. To, we're going to have baptisms after the gathering here, so a beautiful day for that uh, after a service here. Before we get started, though, in our time in the scriptures, if you're a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, there's some amazing folks over to my left here in the back that would love to uh, spend some time with you this morning, so feel free to make your way that direction. And for the rest of us, if you have your copy of the scriptures, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 17. Judges 17. And especially this morning, there's going to be a lot of scripture we're going to be looking at. There's going to actually be a few uh, times uh, in the actual time that we're looking at the scriptures where instead of me reading the text, I'm going to actually ask you to look at your Bibles and look at the text itself. Because what we're going to be looking at this morning is we're going to be looking at the last five chapters of the book of Judges. So yes, we're going to go through five chapters this morning. It's okay. I'm going to just teach for a couple hours, and we're just going to not be able to go outside and enjoy the sunshine. So I'm just going to keep going. Uh, but no, just, total, well, normal, normal sermon length. Don't worry. But if you have your uh, Bible, it'll be really important this morning because we're going to cover a lot of ground. And really, the last five chapters actually really make up two uh, big stories. So we're just going to be looking at really two stories and how they go together as we close out our time in the book of Judges. Now, maybe to kind of frame where we're going to be headed this morning, let me kind of just give you a thought experiment for a second. Perhaps imagine what would it look like when God's people decide that they believe the lie that they belong to themselves and that they can just do whatever they want. What would happen in society if God's people just sort of believed this lie, I belong to myself, I am my own, I can make my own decisions, I can do what is right in my own eyes. What would society look like if God's people just started believing that? Chaos, right? Well, that's what the last five chapters of the book of Judges are going to give us a picture of. And just fair warning, these are probably some of the most I don't know, difficult passages to look at as far as the reality of sin and the reality of brokenness and just the capability of what God's people do when they believe this lie, I belong to myself and I'm just going to pretty much do whatever pleases me. So forewarning, we're going to dive into this. Let's start with Judges 17 starting in verse 1. Kind of thinking about it in this frame, what happens when God's people believe the lie, I belong to myself. Verse 1, chapter 17 says this. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver are taken from you, and that I heard you place a curse on? Here's the silver. I took it. Then his mother said, My son, may you be blessed by the Lord. He, being Micah, returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I personally consecrate or set apart the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit, to make a carved image of silver idol, and I will give it back to you. So he returned, Micah, the silver to his mother, and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a silver idol, and it was in Micah's house. That's just the opening, that's just how you start a story in the book of Judges. What's going on here? So you have this guy named Micah, and apparently, prior to this story, there was a moment where apparently he stole or took 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. All right, so not off to a great start. But then he gets this, you know, idea, I'm going to return the silver back to my mom. And his mom twice invokes the name of Yahweh. 
and says, basically, may the Lord bless you. Let me take this silver and make it for you essentially a personal mini idol, a personal mini God. Right? And so Mike is like, okay, what a great idea. Let me just have this own personal statue idol crafted out of silver. And that way, I'll have this, this ability to have this idol where I can worship and think about God and all these sorts of religious activities in a way that is manageable, in a way that fits me and my preferences. Because that's essentially what idolatry and idol worship is. Taking the creator God who is above everything, who is magnificent and glorious and beyond all comparison, but idolatry reduces the greatness of God to something manageable. Something that is my size, my convenience. Something where I am over the image. I am over the idol versus the creator God being over me. Now, think about this for a second. In verse 3, again, what the mother says, I personally consecrate or set apart the silver of the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image in a silver idol. Now, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to figure this out, but what's wrong with this picture? Ten Commandments, anybody? Right? No other gods, no idols. Like 0 for 2 right off the bat. And not only, again, I mentioned this, are they making idols, but they're invoking the name of Yahweh twice in these first five verses as if it's like totally blessed or something by God. Now, as the story goes on, that mentions though in verses 4 and 5 that this idol is simply just chilling in Micah's house. Again, it's his own personal God just for him. Like it's in his living room. It's like Baby Yoda, just kind of sitting there, just all cute, right? It's just perfectly right there for him. And then in verse 6, the story, the paragraph ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes. I'm like, okay. That's, you know, it's not like the worst thing I've ever heard, but, you know, we're not off to a good start here in Judges 17. See, and this is what people do when everyone believes the lie that they belong to themselves, fashioning God in their own image in a manageable, convenient, personal way. A God that is now small enough in this idol to never actually challenge you. To never actually perhaps command or demand something from you. See, when we, when we reduce God to something convenient, manageable, my size, that just sits perfectly in my own life, in my living room, kind of comfortably, we're not actually worshiping God. I've heard it said this way, God makes us in his image and then we return the favor. And I think sometimes that happens, right? Where we want to reduce God to fit our own agendas, preferences, so on and so forth. Now from here to the rest of the chapter, the narrator of, of Judges 17 introduces us to this other character who doesn't have a name, he's just simply called the Levite. The Levite. Now, if you kind of know your Old Testament, the Levite would have been someone who has some religious authority, some religious prestige, kind of a member of the, of the, the tribe that would bring out the priests for Israel. So someone of importance here, at least. Now, Micah, who has this personal idol in his home, ends up meeting this Levite, this religious leader. And essentially, Micah pays the Levite to be his personal priest, to basically kind of get and justify a religious leader to, to now just sort of validate and affirm all the decisions that Micah is doing for himself. And if you kind of remember your Old Testament, the Levites were not supposed to kind of take monetary compensation or at least be bride, kind of brided like this. And then in verse 13 of chapter 17, the text says, Micah says, 
Now I know that the Lord will be good to me because this Levite has become my priest. What's going on here? Think about this for a second. You have Micah makes his personal idol. He essentially hires out this religious leader to essentially bless and condone all the decisions that Micah wants to do now. And now Micah feels justified in his actions. I have a religious leader affirming my decisions. I mean, humans don't do that ever, right? Taking someone, taking a a religious leader, oh, this religious leader, this important person agrees with what I'm doing, even though I know it goes against what Scripture has said. But because this person has religious authority or religious background, I'm good. God's going to bless me now. Because it's very easy, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, to find a religious leader that would condone and bless whatever you might want to do. And it's the same thing today. Opinions vary. Info varies. But the question becomes, are God's people being faithful to Yahweh and not believing the lie? I belong to myself. I can justify my own behavior, even if it means taking a religious leader and having them invoke blessing upon one's life. Now, that's kind of the first part of this story. What happens next? See, Micah seems to be this kind of person representing, again, someone who believes this lie, I belong to myself. Now, notice what happens, though. This isn't someone who's like, okay, I'm going to have no religious background at all. I'm just going to say no to religion altogether. You know, the, the, the kind of the tendency of, of God's people when they want to belong to themselves is not to be just anti-religious altogether, but to now use religion to serve one's own preferences, comforts, purposes, so on and so forth. That's essentially what's happening with Micah in this story. But it kind of becomes comical, though, when we turn to chapter 18, what happens next. What happens next, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 18. The text says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So again, we're already off to this kind of bad start again. There's no king in Israel. That line's going to get repeated over and over throughout this section. And the author's trying to tell us something without actually being super explicit. What's needed around here is a king. Because this is what happens when Israel has no king. There's no king in Israel. And the Danite tribe, one of the tribes of Israel, was looking for territory to occupy. Up to that time, no territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites set out five brave men from their clans, from Zorah and Ashtol, to scout out the land and explore it. They told them, go and explore the land. They came to the hill country of Ephraim, as far as the home of Micah, and spent the night there. Now, kind of brief overview of what's happening here. Is that here you have this tribe of Israel, the Danites. And they're looking for some territory to conquer. There's a little bit of a backstory here back to the book of Joshua and kind of how they didn't get all the allotment or their land from what Joshua had previously granted to them. And so they're at this moment where they're going to look to kind of gain or conquer some land. So what they do is they essentially send these five spies on this scouting mission. And these five spies kind of run into Micah. They meet Micah and they kind of begin to have this interchange and dialogue going on here. What ends up happening throughout this story, though, is that these five scouts come to Micah's house And remember what's in Micah's house? His own little personal idol, right? Baby Yoda's sitting there. And he takes this idol, and and the five scouts take the idol from Micah. And Micah loses everything at this point. This is like everything to Micah. And then Micah says this in, in verse 24. You take my gods that I made and my priest, because the scouts also took the priest. The, they, they, the scouts come and they take the priest, and instead, because Micah had paid, them, paid the priest some money before, these Danites basically say, I'll, I'll basically one-up you. I'll give you more money. I'll give you more provisions. So not only is this priest corrupt, taking profit, taking money to, you know, the highest bidder, 
Now Micah is out of both his idol and his personal priest. And he says this in verse 24. You take my gods that I made and my priest and I go away. What do I have left? And it's this kind of sad picture of someone who has just placed all of their eggs in the basket of self, of, of curating a religious sort of experience or an environment that just benefits themselves, and then just losing all of it. It's just gone. What do I have left, Micah says. Now the last detail I want to point out in chapter 18 is simply this. Well, the Levite... It's, it's kind of hard to tell what his actual name is. The text in chapter 18 at the end does tell us, though, that this Levite is a direct descendant from Moses. So you're just talking about all sorts of kind of corruption. You have the, the leader of God's people who brought Israel out of slavery. By the time you get to the second, probably third generation now, the leadership is corrupt. They're up for hire. They're up for just the highest bidder. And God's people, represented in this character Micah, are just wanting to curate religion for their own personal preferences. Now that's kind of the first story, chapter 17, 18. They kind of go together telling this story about Micah and this priest named Levite. Now, forewarning, chapter 19 begins this second story. If Micah is this story about sort of personal preference, idolatry, religion on one's own terms, kind of like, you know, have to be just right. God has to be manageable and just right, kind of like, you know, Goldilocks. Not too hot, not too cold, but just right. If that's the first story, this second story starting in chapter 19 really ramps up the corruption amongst God's people. Let's take a look, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, kind of, this, kind of this, we're getting used to this now, right? No king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country, just kind of FYI, it's not totally clear if this is the same Levite from 17 and 18. But there you have it, a Levite was staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim and acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. Now, just so you know, that's not okay, right? So we're already off to a bad start. Verse 2, she, the concubine, was unfaithful to him and left him for his father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for four months. So this, the concubine is like, I'm, I want out of this. I'm done. I'm going back to my father. We don't necessarily know all the details, but essentially she leaves this kind of evil man, if you will. And this kind of sets the stage. Again, remember the detail, there's no king in Israel. This is what happens when God's people believe the lie, they belong to themselves. So he takes the concubine, meaning they're not married. She leaves kind of this man, goes to her father's house in Bethlehem, and then verse 3 says this. When her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had his servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. Now, just so we're kind of clear what's happening here. The man who had this concubine is now going to kind of chase after his concubine to her father's house in Bethlehem. And the father is welcoming this man who had married his daughter or had, is having a relationship with his daughter as a concubine. And this man is trying to essentially get his concubine back right now. This is kind of what's happening in the story. The story goes on, though. His father-in-law, so this is the, the concubine's father, detained him, and he stayed with him for three days. They ate, they drank, they spent the nights there. So this is what happens. The concubine, the, the, the father of the concubine, and this man 
they kind of go back and forth. Because the man wants to take his concubine back and go back to his home, but the father kind of has this back and forth moment where he's like, no, stay with me a few more days. I'm going to provide you some food. I'm going to provide you some drinks. Stay with me a little bit longer. And they go back and forth kind of a handful of times. But by the time you get to verse 10, the man and his concubine are basically on their journey back home. We're like, okay. They're journeying back home. The man got his concubine back. This is a weird story, I know. But it's, 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 and you're supposed to feel like, what, what am I being told this? Why is this in the scriptures? So if you feel like that, you know, join the club. But as the story is being told in verse 10, they're journeying back towards the man's hometown. And this is where it kind of really gets disturbing. There's no other way to really put this. They're, again, so they're on their journey back home. And what happens is that they need to have like this sort of break in their journey. They need to take a little bit of rest. And they look to stay the night in this place called Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is where the tribe of Benjamin is living at this time. Now, just kind of big picture here, it's important to recognize that all what we're talking about this morning, this is all of God's people. All these people groups, these are different tribes and clans within God's people. So this isn't necessarily like a critique of like, look how evil the culture is out there. Look how messed up, you know, this big bad world is out there. The book of Judges, and especially the last few chapters, are an internal critique of God's own people. Of what happens when God's people believe this lie, I belong to myself, and I can just do whatever pleases me, or feels good, or feels right. So just kind of keep that in the back of our head as we dive into this even a little bit more. So again, the man is concubine, they finally leave the father-in-law, they're journeying back to the man's hometown, they get tired, they need to stay the night somewhere. They end up at this place called Gibeah. Gibeah is where the tribe of Benjamin is at. This is important, all right? But then we pick up the story in verse 20. They're sort of welcoming, and this old man says in verse 20, welcome, said the old man. I'll take care of everything you need. So this unnamed man is going to welcome the man and his concubine for the night. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he brought them to his house, fed the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Now, so far, pretty harmless. But you have this unnamed man providing some hospitality for this man and his concubine. But what happens that night is probably, at least in my estimation, probably one of the most disturbing stories in all of Scripture. Now, I'm not actually going to read it because it's, it's that bad. There's a slide where it has the verses. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles right now, I want to just give you a few minutes to read it in your head yourself, starting in verse 22. Verse 22 through verse 26. So it's four or five verses. Judges 19, verses 22 through 26. I'll just give us maybe 60 seconds to just kind of read through it. Just by way of background, verse 22, when it says the wicked men, those are the, those are the Benjam Benjaminites. Those are God's people. So these wicked men are surrounding the house. They're wanting to get in. That old man in, in verse 22 reference there is kind of the one that's giving hospitality to the man and his concubine. So their request in verse 22 is obviously extremely disturbing. Verse 23, the owner who is giving this hospitality is like, don't do this. He offers in verse 24. Again, that is extremely disturbing in verse 24. The language that's used there is probably one of the most vile things a human being can ever do to another human being. 
And so essentially this man allows his concubine to essentially face the worst that humans ever do to one another. This is what happens. The book of Judges is telling us when God's people want to be their own authority and they want to do what feels good and seems good and not really care about what is actually good in God's eyes. So just so we're clear, let's kind of pick up the story here. This is outrageously disgusting, right? Unimaginable things happening to, by God's people and to God's people in this, in this story. This Levite is willing to basically throw out the women to be abused and raped, to essentially save himself. It's awful. And we should be appalled as we read this story. Why would God's people not only do this, but also save this story as part of their sacred scriptures? Why for millennia upon millennia have God's people included stories like this as part of their sacred texts? It's an interesting question. You know, there's a level of kind of the genre of tragedy that has a place throughout human history to paint this picture to expose the evil of humanity, to really wake us up to the reality of what humans are capable of doing as a warning, as a way of alerting each, each, us, each of us. You think of that saying that, that people have often said, and I, I believe it to be true, but for the grace of God, there go I. Apart from God's grace, apart from the work of God and the Holy Spirit in my life, who is to say that I, I, I wouldn't become this kind of person? Who, who gives me the right to say that I am just morally superior than you know, this person over here because they've done this sort of evil thing? What? It's by God's grace that God has sustained me, the work of the Spirit in my life, the work of the Spirit in your life that has brought us closer to him and away from these evil and, and horrendous things. It's an act of God's grace, not your own moral effort or superiority to look down on others and be like, oh, I cannot believe society would do something like that, let alone God's people. But there's a level of receiving and recognizing the mercy of God in our lives. Think about the people that have maybe poured into your life, that have oriented you towards the way of Jesus and the fruit of his spirit. Think about all the times that You've been in community together. When perhaps there's been temptation to go down a particular road that isn't good for your flourishing and well-being. And that community has brought you closer to the person of Jesus. Because, friends, the reality is, someone doesn't just wake up one day and decide, I'm going to do the most vile thing I can possibly do. There's a process, a pattern, a path that has been sort of evolving over time. That no one wakes up one morning and just decides, I'm going to be the most evil thing I can possibly be. Evil manifests itself slowly over time like a virus. Kind of like yeast and like, you know, when you do the, the sourdough bread kind of thing, it just kind of multiplies or whatnot. A similar thing I think happens with sin. It snowballs and it grows. But God loves us enough to confront us, even in those what we might think small things, out of his love and his mercy and his compassion and says, I have more for you. I have a better way to live. 
away that you don't believe this lie that you belong to yourself, but you actually reorient back to him and recognize that my one comfort is that I belong to Jesus. I belong to him and his way offers life and his way offers flourishing and his way offers forgiveness and grace and healing. And so as we think about this, the story continues. It's crazy because in verse 28, the man says to his concubine, get up, let's go. But there was no response. So the man picked, put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he entered his house, he picked up a knife, took hold of his concubine, and I'll just, you can see it on the screen. What happens next? It's again, unbearable what happens. In this story, what the man is now going to do is he's going to send to, in 12 pieces so that each tribe of Israel knows about what happens in his own life. It's, it's sick and perverted. Now what happens here is that when you get into chapter 20, there's this kind of revenge story that plays out. Because again, it was the Benjaminites that did this originally to the concubine, and now the rest of the tribes of Israel now know about it because of what just took place here, what the man did to his concubine. And so now you have this like tit for tat on like a, an enormous scale now. So now the rest of Israel wants to take revenge on the Benjaminites. And so now there's this bloody war, bloody battles that take place in chapter 20, where it's again, tit for tat, it's like the worst version of the most violent movie you could possibly imagine in chapter 20. And then by the time you get to chapter 21, there's this kind of promise that's made or this vow that's made by God's people that basically says, we're not going to marry any of the Benjaminites. We want them to be wiped out, essentially. And so you see this brokenness now, where now there's this animosity within God's people because of things that, prior, that have been previously done by God's people. And so this whole thing is a train wreck. This whole thing is a mess. You know, there's so much we could talk about with this story here. The grotesqueness, the, just the disturbing nature of a story like this. But I think it's important to recognize that, again, we're talking about God's people here. This is about the tribes of Israel. In a period in their history when the text repeatedly tells us, and quote, there was no king. And everyone was doing right whatever was right in their own eyes. You know, as we go through the, the, the story here in chapter 21, I won't go necessarily go through all the, the details here, but again, essentially, the revenge game keeps playing itself out, tit for tat, going back and forth. And by the time you get to the end of the story, at the end of the chapter, you read this line, verse 23 of chapter 21. The Benjaminites did this, and took the number of women they needed from the dancers they caught at Shiloh. And the backstory simply there is that Israel sort of created this provision for the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Israel wanted nothing to do with ben the Benjaminites now. And so they, the Benjamites are wondering, okay, so how can we continue our tribe, our family line? We need a way to, to marry some other women so that our generations can continue. And so they had this kind of, again, perverted idea to sort of have this celebration where the tribe of Benjamin was, was basically going to then hijack or, or take other women from this other clan to essentially become the wives of the tribe of Benjamin so that they could continue their generations or their family line. Again, it's, it's messed up. And so you get to the end of the chapter, the author summarizing this. They went back to their own inheritance, rebuilt their cities, and lived in them. At that time, each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family. 
Each returned from there to his own inheritance. And then verse 25, this is the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. The end. And I don't know about you. If you're like in your high school like English class, you end a story like that, what kind of grade are you going to get? Right? <laughs> there's like no, there's no conclusion here. Like, what's the, what is the author, what is a piece of literature like this trying to communicate to us? It just ends with, you know, all these, these stories. We've talked about the cycle of sin and, and oppression and deliverance and then repeated sin. You get to the last five chapters, there's no cycle here. It's just complete, like, in the pit for Israel. In the last line, no king in Israel, everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes. The end, book of Judges. Happy Thanksgiving. Right? <laughs> but seriously, though, what are we to make of a text like this? It's in the scriptures. It's a part of the Bible that I believe Jesus would have read himself. These stories have meant something very important to God's people for millennia. So instead of skipping over it, instead of just kind of broad brushing and pretending, oh, let's just go to like, you know, Jesus, you know, feeding a bunch of people. That's like cute and cuddly. We like that one. Why pay attention to stories like this? And why pay attention to stories like this for our everyday life 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later after the text like this was written? Again, think about what I mentioned at the very beginning, that frame. What would happen if society, or in particular, God's people believe the lie, I belong to myself. I can just do whatever feels good. Well, you have the book of Judges as sort of like a case study in that sort of thought experiment of what happens when God's people believe this sort of lie. But for us, think about it today. Are we tempted ourselves to believe that lie? That I belong to myself. That I can just do whatever feels good, whatever's right in my own eyes, external authority, it doesn't matter. I just want to do what gratifies my own desires. And there's a level too, where we look at a text like this and we go, Aaron, how could you possibly think any of us are that evil or that, you know, wicked to do something like that? I'm not saying that at all, just so we're clear, right? No one in this room is struggling with, like, you know, violence and vengeance and all these, like, that's not necessarily our issue today with some of this. But there is a level when Paul in the New Testament says, if anyone thinks he is something, that person better consider or take heed lest they fall as well. And there's this thing that C.S. Lewis talks about, chronological snobbery, where we look back at ancient people and like, oh, they're so barbaric and evil and wicked. But what about the own sort of issues and sins and brokenness in our own hearts? What about the areas in our lives where we believe and that we can just do whatever feels good for ourselves? And let me sort of boil this down to kind of three main ideas, all under this kind of bigger idea of what happens when we believe we belong to ourselves. Kind of three things for our sort of everyday moment in our, our cultural context. Think about this first one. I'll call it buffet Christianity. Buffet Christianity. So you have this idea of, in particular, the first story, where Micah has personally crafted his own idol for himself. It's a version of, of following God where it's convenient, it's for him, it's manageable. We talked about this before. But what, what's happening here is that Micah is now essentially catering or, or kind of curating religious experiences and religious practices that don't actually demand anything from him. Where he is the one that's in charge. 
where he's the one that gets to kind of pick and choose what feels good and what is right in his own eyes. But in our context, there's kind of something similar that happens. And people have talked about this before, and they use this language of buffet Christianity. It's as simple this idea of, how many of you have ever been to one of those all-you-can-eat places where you just kind of pick and choose whatever you want? Right? Those are awesome, right? Growing up, I had my, my grandparents used to live down in Southern California in Camarillo. So we lived up in Washington. We'd drive down almost every summer to spend, spend a couple weeks down in Southern California. And on our way down, we'd always stop at this hometown county buffet in Medford, Oregon. Right? And it was like this key moment in the journey, like going to hometown county buffet. And it's just like this epic experience where you're like a middle schooler, right? And it's all you can eat for like 12 bucks, and you're not even paying for it, right? And so you just got to pick and choose whatever you want, whatever feels good in that moment. And there's a level to a certain degree where if we're honest, there's moments in our own devotion and discipleship to Jesus where we are tempted to do that as well sort of picking and choosing what feels good in the moment, what kind of satisfies my own preferences. That's happening a little bit with Micah, especially in that first story as well. But what happens, though, is we kind of live into this lie of believing, I'm just going to have a buffet approach to Christianity. What happens then is self becomes kind of the supreme God in the, in the relationship. And we get to this point where the second point here of optimizing ourselves where everything becomes, even our own religious practices, become a way of optimizing my own self because now I am at the center. Now I am the one who is supposed to be not necessarily like worshiped like extravagantly, but I want you to think highly of me. I want to be the one who gets to make the decisions and kind of curate what it means to follow Jesus. But friends, this is an actually unbearable way to live. To place yourself at the center you now carry the burden of defining meaning and value and importance. You carry the burden of determining what is right and wrong amidst a culture that's constantly shifting. You have the burden of making an identity for yourself instead of receiving the identity that God wants to give to you out of his grace and his mercy. And if we're not careful... Believing this lie of constantly wanting to optimize ourselves, we can even get to this moment where even really, really good and important things, like the spiritual disciplines, just become a shortcut to simply just optimizing my own sort of life. Where even things like prayer become just a secular version of like mindfulness. Or even things like Sabbath become a secular version of like digital detox. But it's all because of wanting to evaluate and upbuild my own self, optimizing ourselves versus placing God at the center. A worldview that 